Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. It takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, It takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to bake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. I met actor Joel Bernstein at a bar crawl radio recording, number 52. At the time, he had been in Russia with the Medicine Show Theater's production of 14 Little Red Huts. Joel is a complete actor, stage, film, and TV, and was most recently seen in a recurring role in Mozart in the Jungle, playing Warren Boyd, the orchestra's first violinist. He has been on episodes of Law & Order and The Chappelle Show, and most recently in the 2017 film, The Meyerowitz Stories. And Joel is co-producing this Hunker Down podcast show. Joel Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us here on Hunker Down. Uh, you, Yeah, you, you are the co-producer of this. I hired you on at, mm-hmm. uh, at a significant cost to myself. <laughs> mental cost, <laughs> mental cost. Right? Mental is right. More than you know, Mike. Yeah, friend. just working <laughs> with Joel Bernstein is so difficult. He's such a... <laughs> He's such a hard person to get along with. Oh, as, my God. Yes. As, as you'll be able to see as we go through this conversation about actors uh, hunkered down in the COVID-19 dilemma here. How are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm doing okay. We're doing fine, uh, all things considered. But there are a lot of things that one is considering, of course. Um, what I notice a lot is that how... Um, the smallest day-to-day tasks take longer to do. (laughs) I mean, getting food up here takes longer to do and it's fraught where, and I used to just dart outside and, um, you know, get my, my provisions, our provisions. And, and um, now I got to call a, you know, get a set up a delivery, blah, 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 blah. And it just, it's cumbersome. And I found, as I thought about this, and this is sort of informs how I chose the material I want to read for you today. Great. I'm uh, so glad you found something that you, uh, you're comfortable with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the more I looked at it, the more, um, the better it seemed to me. I realized that, um, you know, you say why we, we can't do our work. Well, the truth is, you know, most actors 
you know, you spend 90% of your time not working. So in that respect, it's not really a change. Um, but what is a change is that, um, you know, living my life as though I have been uh, uh, exposed to this virus as we're all instructed to do, I'm going out almost not at all. And what I started to notice was <laughs> the city's been taken away from me. I love the city. I grew up basically here. Um, and it's outside my window, but I cannot go there. And um, as I reflected upon that, it really um, helped me focus on what I wanted to do here today, because that is what's been taken away from me. Uh, my performance, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it'd be great if I were working uh, right now, but, you know, in, as I say, in the normal course of events, you know, I spend most of my time not being able to perform. You've uh, done New York stuff, New York, I mean, Law and Order and Mozart in the Jungle, yes. of course. Yeah, and those and are all very. Chappelle's show. Don't forget Chappelle's show. The Chappelle show, show exactly. <laughs> um, and um, it's, you're, you're a New York actor. Yes. Um, and so how, right. how much does the actual being in New York inform who you are and the characters that you play? I mean, you say you don't have the seat anymore. It's not there for you. No, that, but that's for me as a person. You know, I, as, I'm, as a person and, and as a performer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really, I don't believe that we live in parallel universes, although we are, you know, that's an appealing thought from time to time. But no, um, you can't separate them out. So that's true. Yeah, that's I true. guess it's hard to describe. It's just, it's just there. It's just, you know, Joel Bernstein, New York, um, the, the the feel of the city, the the energy, the vibration of it. It's no, no, kind of, no. That's true. That's yeah. True. It's all. Uh, why don't we just go back a little bit? I thought maybe we will explore about, you know, uh, why did you become an actor? Ah, uh, I surprised <laughs> you with that one. Yeah, you did actually. Um, uh, well, it was the '60s. You know, I um, that I had done. Through high school and college, I had done a lot of plays, uh, and and but if you'd asked me during my freshman sophomore years in college what I was going to do with my life, I would have said I'm going to be a scholar of some kind. I'm mm -hmm. going to major in English, which I was doing, which I ended up doing, and um, and and you'll you'll find me in some you know uh, dusty library. 30 years from now, doing dusty library-ish things. Would you, um, would you have been happy with that, do you think? Whatever that study would have been. Um, well, I had an aptitude for it, and I had an interest in it, definitely. Happy, I'm not really sure. I guess not, because otherwise I would have done it. And, but as I say, it, this decision depended on the times, and the times were, well, they led us all to believe that we could follow our bliss and all would be well. Um, and, you know, I guess that's ultimately that's true, but the costs were unknown at the time and the costs have become more manifest over the years. 
Yeah. But still, no, no, no. Still, I'm. Um, I know it was a good decision, but it was. Uh, I went to it. Went into it totally clueless about what it meant. I, I, I suspect. I suspect we all might do that. I don't know. I did. I did. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I hear you about the '60s as as this kind of moment of you know free sex and free thinking and well i wouldn't go that far but well, yeah, okay, yeah 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 i mean i mean it's just in talking, my corner of the world yeah I'm just talking yeah, about yeah. this like openness like you you could be anything yeah you I, be. I say that because i feel like i was uh i was a i was an onlooker towards much of the culture of the 60s me 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 too but part of that was that you had the freedom to make the choice to be an actor Yes, uh, true. And uh, I mean, early on, I, well, I tried to be an actor. I didn't follow through with it like you did. Um, and uh, it just was kind of a mystery to my father why I wanted to do that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. My parents, too. My parents, too. But they painted themselves in a corner by repeating their mantra. And it was a beautiful thing, really, through growing up was um, what makes you happy makes us happy. Good. All right. And I, 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 I dared them to go farther and farther across that line. Yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. As um, as the years went on, yeah. Where did you get your training? Um, I was an undergraduate at at um, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and um, then uh, I did a um, an MFA at Columbia in the city here. Right. Many people don't know that to become an actor, it's not just something you do. It's, it's something that you become over time. Mm, like, you just, like you don't just become a lawyer. You've got to study it. You've got to get accultured to that, mm-hmm. that quality of thinking and all. And there isn't a way of thinking and being as an actor. What techniques did you use? Was it Stanislavski or? Well, you know, you get exposed to a whole panoply of techniques and then over, over the years of your actual career you you pick and choose or i have done you know you you find what works for you um um yes i was exposed to um to stanislavski of course that was we were all steeped in that back then and um, strasburg i guess and what strasburg oh, strasburg yeah i guess um and um but exposed the 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 thing that was most influential to me and and remains with me um sort of i don't know it was very strong with me is uh, michael chekhov um psychological gesture that that kind of thing mm-hmm. so so of, so of all the things that you learned to become an actor uh is it the physical is it the emotional is it the that literary uh, you know that that interpreting what the role is well, I came to it with an overdeveloped <laughs> yeah. uh, m- mental equipage, oh. mm-hmm. you could say. Mm-hmm. And um, but what was what I needed and wasn't aware of at the time was the physical connection, and that's been the most um, compelling for me over the years because I, I didn't have it to begin with and I developed it and I realized how important it was the combination of that and the emotional thing but I had access to the emotional thing a little bit but the physical not so much in fact it was a, a dance class while an undergraduate that really um, opened the door into what would become my acting career 
And you, yeah. you say physical. Let's talk to people who don't, they're not actors. I mean, if you're talking to actors, they'll get what you're saying. But what, what is this physical? Is it a freedom of the body? Is it, uh, what is it, a creative movement? Uh, what is the physical part? The, yeah. Well, you know, the body, our bodies are always with us, right? But until, until, they're, until it's not. Until it's not, God help us. Yeah. Um, just to lead from that, mm-hmm. <laughs> to um, think of that as the dominant way through which you meet the world. Does that make sense? Um, so that. Um, okay. Uh, okay. There's, there, there's a world right outside your window. I guess right. uh, my, my window is over this way. And um, mine's. That is, way. is yeah. that way? So it looks or, like or it's, it's that way too. Yeah. Okay. Heck? Well, yeah. you've you've got a better room. I've just got it on one side. Uh, when you look out in that world, um, what 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 do you see? What what are what are the things going out there? I mean, I'm talking emotionally or physically. How does your body react to that COVID nineteen world? What you see now, as an actor, well, what are you seeing? Well, I'm struck by it because I'm looking out over Tenth Avenue. Um, and I the traffic is headed uptown and there's no traffic, you know, there's nothing happening on the streets or almost nothing. And if I think physically, uh, it's causing me to breathe a little bit deeper and to sympathize with the breath and my body is leaning a bit towards that my shoulders are dropping and relaxing and focusing i'm focusing on this taxi trying to go up the street and oh I'm not doing so oh, it's fine and uh you know one or two people walking out you see i mean the whole actor thing in me longs for specificity and clarity of focus and so that's where i'm going and that is the combination of, yes, the physical and the attention. Where's my attention? Uh, it's another thing they always used to ask in class. Where's your, what's your point of attention right now? Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've, I've done these interviews just on the phone, and now being right. able to watch you as you engage the moment. Yeah. Uh, the camera's on you. I'm watching you. You're aware I'm watching you. Yeah. I know. But yet yeah. you are within that actor place that allows you to be in your feelings and your body. Right. Um, and that's, that's an important right. part of being who you are as an actor. Definitely. And it was, <laughs> as I say, that that's definitely um, something that developed in me. Uh, I did not, uh, I was a kid. I was, uh, I was ill frequently. I had a recurrent, non-life-threatening heart issue, which is faded. But it caused me to not go to gym. It caused me to gain a lot of weight. Um, so I had to become a different person kind of thing. Yeah. I have, have done over the years. So. This this uh, connection that um, you, uh, you have as an actor through characters, you're able to express it through characters that are written mm. by playwrights, yeah. What is who is your favorite character that you've played? I mean, going going all the way back. Well, I played Shylock in Merchant of Venice. That I, that was a, a lot of 
that was extraordinary. I learned a lot from doing that one. Um, and um, I played um, Eddie Brock in, in Born Yesterday. Right, he's the lawyer, right? No, Eddie Brock is the is Harry Brock's cousin. He's kind of a gopher. He's he That's opens right. doors. He does all this, you know, kind of stuff. He he's he's just there. He's kind of. Uh, he, he. I mean, if I, if I remember right, he kind of tells us a lot about about the main character. I mean, he's kind of like uh, like uh, a fa- a facet of who the main character is. Well, yeah, he's a poor cousin. He's the guy who's just, uh, he's a toady. And he's like, he lives in fear of, uh, as everyone else does, pretty much. Why, 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 why did you enjoy that role? Oh, because it's a great... <laughs> um, it's comic, certainly. It's comic, yeah. It's comic. Yeah. I don't know. See, I've always liked stuff. It, it, I'm an ensemble player, you know. It's a... It, it, it's um, it's a guy who fits into the world. I love piecing together how I fit into the world of uh, of the plays that I do. Yep, yep. And and, uh, and that and the relationships, you know, it's. Um, Let's follow that. I realize that we all feel that way. I, that's not specific, but I'll 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 hone in on it as yeah, well. Yeah. Well, let's let's kind of focus in this idea of relationship. What I learned when when I was doing my few years of acting was that listening is really important. It's all it is. Yeah. Listening and breathing. You, if you do those two things, you're, and let that lead you, you're, you're halfway home. Right. But the listening is not just listening to words. You're listening to the entire person that's well, next you're to you. listening to with your whole body, yeah. you're listening with, your, with your whole apparatus. You should pardon the expression or instrument. Yeah. Loathsome word that they used to use all the time. Still do, I guess. And um, Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what happens now, and I'm going to bring this back to where we are now. Now you're sitting alone, hunkered down in your room. Right, right, right. Um, oh, another, another part that I loved doing was, um, was um, Mortimer in The Fantastics, which I played for six years here in the city. So. The actor? No, the, the, the Indian. The Indian, right. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, listening is important. And how do you listen when you're not when you're not with another actor or you're not kind of listening to the director or listening to the set that you're on, um, you, you can't really be an actor where you are now, can you? Well, it's interesting that you say, because um, I've had to do a couple of video auditions over the last week or so. And because I'm being as rigorous I, as I can about not leaving the apartment, um, I've been working um, with, scene partners who are talking to me from their apartment Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the phone. So, so there's that. So I'm like, I am with, imagine I'm, I'm, I'm looking, you know, at a point, you know, um, up there on the screen, say the the equivalent of that. And, and, and my scene partner's voice is coming out of uh, my phone on speakerphone. So it's not like the way we normally do it, but it can be done. I mean, it's just like when you first get to work in front of a camera, having been a stage actor, and what, you, what I have pieced together over the years and all of that is that it's the same, it's the same toolbox, you're using the same tools, but you're 
um, deploying them in a different order. And, um, and you're learning how to do, you know, repeat something, repeat tiny snippets over and over again, you know, when they need multiple takes, which they always do. Right. Well, and, what, um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. What, what, what about this idea of the live audience? And we don't, we don't have that. Who knows when we're going to have it again. Right. Exactly. I mean, uh, Broadway, <clears throat> I don't think it's going to be the same when we're, you know, it's going to take a while for Broadway to get back when we can start getting outside. But what, what happens to the actor? I mean, is it now become all film? Does it become all video? Does the live you mean audience... after this? Well, the f- yeah. after this, you mean? Yeah. Well, but I mean, the film people are living through the same thing. Yeah. That we are. I mean, they're equally, uh, it's equally impossible. Yeah, but I can go back and watch old, you know, Mozart in the Jungles. You can. Yeah, but you're not working. Uh, you're not, you're, uh, not pro- you're not producing, you're not oh, creating. Oh, not the favorite role. Yes, exactly. So, no, that's true. We can't. You can watch, yeah, I don't, that's true. You can, but, but we can't create new stuff. No. Nobody can create new stuff. No, and uh, playwrights can't get their stuff put up. And right. I, mean, I don't know how long this is going to last, but it's going to be months in which your only access maybe to, to uh, acting and performance is through your video camera and through your... Being your, an audiences member, yeah. I, guess. I mean, how do you mean? Through I mean, being, being an actor. That you could just you go through your video camera and you can have your partner. It's on the phone, and that's that's all it can be for now. I mean, you don't have summer right. stock. You don't. That's a loss, isn't it? Of course, it's a loss. Yeah, but but it's it's been for the moment, at least. The world has been that element has been removed. It's not there. Yeah, you know, um, and that's just that's how it is. I I don't think I could really begin to imagine or certainly not predict where we would be where we will be when this is over assuming we are mm. all together mm. you know um, you know we've already lost people that we know that's not great it's awful yeah. I think the world may very well be transformed in ways that we can't imagine but we can't imagine them the bottom yeah. line i don't think nor can we predict them um Ooh. but we all will <laughs> we will want an audience we will want bodies in a room in front of us uh, when this is over right for sure right uh, and 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 you've you felt that you felt that thing in which an actor is with an audience and you're creating together oh absolutely you mean in in my in the pre <laughs> in the pre covid nineteen world yeah 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 oh yeah absolutely and that that mutual creation of a time a piece a play it's um i you well, know, yeah, we yeah. Yearn for it's it happening again. right now it never comes back again i mean <laughs> yeah I remember Laurie Noto, the Fantastics producer, he used to say, live theater, it's live theater. You know, that's true. That's all that's <laughs> happening now. Now it will never happen again. It's a gift, it's, and it's a gift that's gone. And um, Well, hopefully it's not gone. Hopefully it will. No, no, no. I mean, it. night to night it's gone. Night to night it's gone, absolutely. It, yeah. it is of that moment where yeah. film we can, I mean, I, I just showed uh, Paths of Glory to my students, and I, I watched that film over and over again, and it's wonderful. You know yeah. the Kubrick film, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not it's not a live piece of theater in which I'm with you and watching you do no, your thing. No, no, it's a different animal. Yeah, who? But who, they're both nice animals, you know. No, they're yeah. nice, but they're different. But again, film also requires this getting together. You can't make film unless you're 
No, and together with a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, many, much more than than in theater. I mean, yeah, the, the crew, and then it's right, in, and all that. And uh, you being co-producer of uh, Hunker Down, you're going to be helping us find some of those uh, technical people, and see, yeah, yeah, yeah. see how this I, is uh, I, affecting them. Who, um, who's your the favorite uh, person actor that you've played with? <laughs> people are going to get mad at me. I can't say that. I all right, who's who's one? Who's one? All right, let me ask well, you this. Yeah. Well, well, um, uh, Madeline Kahn is one. Madeline was in the uh, production of, uh, yeah. she was in Our Born Yesterday, which was the first uh, Broadway revival of that film. Wow. She was, yeah. I mean, it was, it was um, an honor and a gift to have worked with her. And who would you want to work with in the future? In the future? Um, you know, my mind always, it's like asking me what a, you know what a dream role is. I, I'm yeah. not good at it, um, but anybody. Because the thing about it, actors is that they all come alive as you work with them, and yeah. you don't know what that chemical thing is going to be until you're in the room with them. You know, or uh-huh. in the studio, or on set, or whatever the hell it is. You know, you do not know. It's like any and relationship; you don't know exactly, and that's the exciting part of it because. You walk in never having seen a person, maybe never having known their work even at all, and boom, you have a all of a sudden you un, un you have a great time. You have a great scene partner that you never knew before. That's um, or that's a gift. Yeah, or or great, not or not. Of course, there's the or not phase yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You can ex- go in thinking, I know this rip. This is going to be great. Yeah. you know and then it just dribbles away it doesn't happen yeah yeah and you, then you got to start pretending yeah which you don't want to do you brought us something uh that you're going to be reading that's right yes mm-hmm. can we mm-hmm. can we can we do that now you tell us what what it is you're reading is it one piece or two it's one piece as i say um i've grown to see how much new york new york city means to me this is a newspaper column actually written in 1955 in the New York Times by a columnist called Meyer Berger. He was known as Mike Berger to um, everybody around him then. And he wrote the column called About New York, which um, was re- has been resurrected in our own time, but he began in, in the 30s and wrote through the 40s and 50s. If you don't mind, I'm going to read you just a a snippet of the foreword to this uh, book, which was was written by Brooks Atkinson uh, back then. The reader will discover for himself how intimately Mike knew even the most obscure places and people that constitute a huge, heedless cosmopolis. The reader will also discover for himself the pithiness of the writing but the reader may not discover for himself something else that is obvious to Mike's friends. All the people interviewed and described have traits of Mike's character. They're modest, self-effacing, and slightly wistful people with a romantic enjoyment of what they know or do. There's not a mean bone in any of them. Although Mike had a passion for objective writing, Every line reflects his character. In the process of losing himself for the sake of his topic, he found himself 
more triumphantly than he knew. I mean, that's remarkable writing, in my opinion, and it parallels an actor's absorption in, 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 you know, to find yourself more triumphantly than you knew by doing your work. (laughs) That is the gift of my career to me. That's what I, that's what I have learned or or I'm in the process of learning. So he wrote these columns and he discovered a lot of different things. And this one, um, well, let me just read this to you. And then maybe I'll say that if, if, if we're still on our feet and breathing afterwards, uh, it'll, um, certain questions and you'll see why why I needed to do this. October 14th, 1955. Between weathered tenements at 422 and 424 West 46th Street, east of 10th Avenue, stands a high wrought iron gate. It gives into a narrow alley that runs back 30 feet beyond in an ancient courtyard paved with random flagstones stands 422 and a half, a converted stable of red brick warm with time. An outside stone staircase leads crookedly up the front wall to a wrought iron porch, something after the New Orleans type. White statuary stands around the courtyard walls and pallid fragments of friezes show dimly on the porch wall. An ancient well in the courtyard is covered over. Mistress of the stable in the courtyard, of the great studio beside it, and of the four-story tenements that hide it from the street is Miss Ruth Faison Shaw, an artist. Miss Shaw is from Wilmington, South Carolina, and velvety southern roundness shows in her soft speech. She bought the old stable about uh, 10 years ago and made it her dwelling, filled it with ancient family pieces and portraits. Architects who have examined the place think some parts of the stable, the, the door arches mostly, indicate that the little building might be of the federal period, possibly 140 to 150 years old, but they're not sure. For years now, Miss Shaw has moved among her tenement neighbors, eagerly searching out the stable's history. She thinks the stable was part of a manor house, that it may have been owned by kin of Governor George Clinton around 1809. Miss Shaw has no documents to bear her out, but neighborhood gaffers since slipped away, (laughs) told her that part of the West Side was called Clinton more than a hundred years ago, and that Widows or Great Kill Creek murmured by the manor door. That is the way Miss Shaw likes to think of it. And because she is mystic, she tells of a delicate wraith in crinoline who sometimes materializes on the crooked staircase at dusk on summer evenings. The ghost in crinoline, Miss Shaw thinks, is either the Irish wife of the Clintons' hostler or Margaret, grandchild of one of the Clintons. Either one or the other died on the crooked turn. Miss Shaw dreamed that, but she feels in her heart it is true. 
Miss Shaw lives with ghosts. She met one 20 years ago in her house on the bluff at First Avenue and 43rd Street. She tells you gravely, it was a young mariner in a glazed hat come to look for Kitty, his sweetheart, who had died there back in the 19th century. He had come out of the sea to find her and his hand was cut. And below her stable house, Miss Shaw says, somewhere near 45th Street and 10th Avenue, there wanders the restless ghost of a moor who was hanged at the battery in colonial days. She says, his body was born up here, far beyond the New York of that day, and it cannot find peace. Well, much of this is gentle fantasy, but in the melancholy dimness of Miss Shaw's stable parlor, with the Faisons and Shaws holding you with their eyes out of dark canvas, it is not difficult to forget you are in the heart of the worst West Side slum in 1955. It is not difficult to enter into the spirit of the stories. Mesmerizing. Is, isn't that something? It is absolutely amazing. And it's... And that blocks from me. If I had read that, I, my impulse is to go out and and go to that place and look at it. I can't do that now. So that's, that's sort of what uh, made this choice um, compelling for me today. I, I yeah, my, um, Becca, um, who you know, went out for, we've been doing like little walks in the neighborhood. And, and um, I'm seeing, and we, 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 uh, we take a little guidebook along. Uh-huh. And we've been in this neighborhood for oh, 40 years, right? longer. And I'm looking at it and seeing it, um, and it's like ghosts, because oh, you, because you've got these old old structures that are in my neighborhood, in your neighborhood. It's all over the city, yeah. And um, and now we're in this moment in which we can't go out and kind of swim in the yeah, wonderful just, ghostliness of this city. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. While while it, while we're producing more ghosts, um, I always used to think. I still think walking around that you know I, i've lived in the west 40s for you know for a long time and um i always just see i always see a particular block say i can transpose in my head the stores that used to be there mm-hmm. you know 10 15 20 25 years ago that are no longer you know um you know plows things under and builds on top of them relentlessly relentlessly Uh, it always has and it still is yeah and that's why this that's why this piece um speaks to me clearly and i wonder and i think we'll end here is um what new york is going to be like and how it's going to be affected by this um this event that started in the um spring of uh, 2020 i think the city will survive but it's going to change yeah there's so much and uh, let me tell you, it's a thrill working with you now on Hunker oh, Down. Thank you. You're too kind. <laughs> thank you. No, no, no. You, you, have, you have enormous amount of resources um, that, um, that I'm benefiting, benefiting from. So thank you. You've been listening to the Hunker Down podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. 
If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. That's one word, UpperWestSideRadio at gmail.com. Radio. You know, I, I grew up as a kid listening to the radio a lot. I listened to Gene Shepard, but the power of radio, I, I'm in, in the dark being spoken to by one yeah. voice, you know, that's, uh, that's what I thought of.